welcome to OptOut's special COP27 chat. I'm Christian Salazar. I'm the climate editor for OptOut News, a network of over 170 news organizations that are independently financed. We're going to talk about the UN's climate conference and what to look forward to in the next uh, few months uh, with the announcements of a deal for a loss and damage fund, which was the big victory out of this year's um, conference. With me today is Amanda Magnani from Brazil, uh, an independent journalist who writes for Al Jazeera, The New Humanitarian, and a number of other publications. And she's been watching over the COP27 um, proceedings and is um, I'm grateful for her to come and chat with us today. Hi, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. It's a big pleasure to be able to collaborate with you and with Opt Out in this chat about COP27. Yeah, so um, going into this conference, there wasn't a lot of uh, high expectations um, because uh, there was a, a feeling that the wealthy nations um, might not want to really uh, commit to any major policies um, in order to fight the climate crisis, but um, things turned out a bit differently. Do you do you want to give us a sense of um, of the conference overall? Yeah, sure. Of course, I think that uh, mostly for global south countries, which are the countries that are being most drastically affected by climate change. Um, the biggest expectation was to have this discussion for loss and damage, because this is not a new discussion and this is not a new request and demand from these countries. But I think that especially in the last couple of years, particularly since the pandemic, it has become it has become even more clear that this is a now or never kind of situation. Um, and especially after COP26, which was a little bit of a letdown with all the, you know, like over careful wording regarding uh, fossil fuel and the phasing out uh, and not a lot of promises and especially not a lot of um details about how to actually implement these premises um there was a huge expectations from these countries that uh, you know like cop 27 would be the the african cop and the the loss and damage cop uh but as you mentioned it wasn't up until the very last minute that this actually entered the agenda right uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, it was in an extended time uh, from the discussion, from the pre-COP discussion that it entered in the agenda, which per se uh, was already a win, you know, like it already counted as a win because before that it had never uh, been a topic whatsoever for, for wealthy countries who have always avoided it. So this last minute uh, inclusion of loss and damage was already um was already a win but of course uh not as much as a win as the actual creation of the loss and damage fund i can't remember exactly who said this i think it was the barbados minister who said that um that uh compensation that is delayed is actually no compensation compensation at all so that's something that had to be done this year and yeah even though like 
the world, the, the wealthy countries did tiptoe a lot around the topic and avoided it throughout most of the event. Also last minute, the same way that it was a last minute inclusion, it was also a last minute decision to to create this fund, which which is a win, but of course with some buts in the way. Right. Now I want to dig into this a little more. I mean, so climate, the climate fund, the loss and damage fund that's being created, um, it's been 30 years that people have been calling for something like this, right? And um, a lot of people call this climate reparations, but I think they were very careful in saying that this was not really climate reparations. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's interesting because they put out this plan for this loss and damage fund, but there's no actual, um, you know, mechanism for funding it. Um, there's no um, uh, way forward for operationalizing it. So um, that's going to be work that people are going to have to do in in the future and in, in the next COP maybe or, or, or down the line over the next few years, right? Yeah, of course. I think that um, yeah, as you said, there is not a lot of details. Again, like happened last COP, there are not a lot of details on how they're going to do it. And as you said, uh, countries are not willing, wealthy countries are not willing to say that this is reparations. Because when you acknowledge this fund as a reparation for countries, you have to admit guilt. And even though countries do kind of, well, I mean, they know they are responsible for climate change, and they are much more responsible than the countries that are suffering from the consequences. Um, acknowledging it as reparation is a way of acknowledging guilt. And of course, uh, once you you acknowledge guilt in this, uh, in this topic, you will also be forced to acknowledge all the guilt regarding um, colonization and the colonial way in which global warming and climate change takes place. So yeah, of course, they were very, very careful with that. Um, and I also have a, a bit of a feeling that um, this is in a sense a major win in the sense that countries accepted creating this fund, even though they were not really willing to do it. And I think that the position of the US made it really clear when John Kerry, who was the special climate envoy from the US to the conference said with all the words that in no way whatsoever would this fund happen. Um, so in a sense, of course, it is a win that it was created, but there is a lot more uh, to go in order for this to, to become a thing, especially because um, in the way it was debated and in the way it was produced and concluded, there was no talk, for, exa for example, about the phasing out of fossil fuel. Um, and the way it's done, you know, like just saying, okay, we're creating a fund, good, but no, not much talk about how long it will take, how much money. Uh, wealthy countries had already been promising since 20, 2009, which was COP15. They had already been promising um, to spend, I think, $100 million uh, a year for um, poor countries. I think it was actually a hundred billion, right? Billion, I think sorry, it was yeah, hundred billion. Billion. Yeah. billion. is hundred yeah. billion is nothing. A hundred billion. No, it's nothing these days. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, and that they should have started this in 2020. So it's been two years, and it still hasn't happened. So of course, not putting um, uh, a deadline 
into when this is actually going to happen and how much it's going to be and how this money is going to to be given at least one thing is that it's not going to be seen as a loan of sorts not like the countries would have to pay back which is already uh, a step forward uh, but also uh, one thing that I've I've seen a lot of um, of the response from from global south countries about uh, concern regarding this lack of of fossil fuel phasing out, because they are if you focus much on paying for loss and damage without um, looking at the root cause of the problem, it's not going to change much because you will be paying for for countries to you know like try to rebuild and also try to um, adapt prior to these damage occur. But if you keep, you know, like drilling and burning and, you know, and the, the such, the the issue will still not be solved. So, yeah, so I think that there is still a lot to go um, regarding how this fund is actually going to, to work and how effective it's actually going to be, especially because uh, just like the, please correct me if I'm mistaken, but just like the Paris Agreement, it's not binding. So the countries agree to do that, but there are no sanctions or no way to force them into following these treaties and these agreements that they signed up for. Yeah, that's how these these agreements work, right? And then, you know, somebody like Trump comes into office and can pull us out of an agreement like the Paris Agreement and then Biden comes back. It is interesting, you know, Biden ended up at the conference, um, but his the response was pretty lukewarm. I mean, and I think his his message was pretty mild. I think he, you know, announced some, you know, methane emissions effort uh, to cut methane emissions. But um, I think everybody was looking for leadership from the U.S. on loss and damage. And it really is interesting that um, it took, you know, a lot of uh, global South countries, along with the European Union, intervening at the last minute. To really get that loss and damage fund created so um but the us and china as well seem to be standing in the way right of of this uh of creating this fund which um you know even you know pakistan's uh, i think climate minister you know was cheering the creation of the fund because you know after those devastating floods in their country you know i mean that was like a wake-up call i think for a lot of people that this really has to happen. Yeah, of course. And I think that um, two, two things that you mentioned that, that I think are, are worthy of commenting. One is that, you know, especially after that that law that the U.S. passed earlier this year that was supposed to be this very big law with a lot of funding for, you know, like fossil fuel phasing out in the U.S. The Inflation Reduction yeah, Act. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, like you expected more of the U.S. and of Biden also being a liberal, which, of course, was not delivered. But also, I think that regarding China, there is a very big issue, which is that China still wants to be considered as a global south slash poor country, um, even though it's now one of the biggest economies in the world and one of the biggest polluters in the world. Uh, it's still... You know, like this this geopolitical position of China, I think, is very complex uh, and and really becomes an obstacle in you know, like in in dealing with climate change. Yeah, 
So good on the one hand, we have the fund, but bad on the other hand, that there's no phase out of all fossil fuels, um, no reduction in emissions. I think the UN Secretary General even commented about this was saying, you know, this is a, you know, the fund was a great, uh, a win, victory for for the global south, but that the next COP will have to deal with how, what we do about emissions, right? What's the next COP, right? Yeah, the next COP, yeah, we just kick this down the line a little bit more, you know? But I also want to talk, you know, since you're in Brazil, I want to talk to you about, you know, uh, Lula made a huge appearance, a lot of uh, exciting, he was like cheered as a hero, um, you know, after he was, uh, became president-elect, you know, and defeated uh, Bolsonaro. And um, yeah, I, you know, what what was the sense in Brazil when, when Lula showed up at, in Egypt for this conference? Well, um, you know, I, I did write a piece for Al Jazeera uh, exactly looking into this. Uh, I think that, like, in Brazil, of course, the, the feeling is still a bit mixed because you may know that this was one of the most polarized elections in Brazilian history. Like, the difference between the number of votes for Bolsonaro and Lula was very, very small. So, of course, there there is still a lot of denialism in the country. Uh, but I think that uh, in in the international community, this was seen as a relief and and also like this this new wind of hope worldwide. Um, it's I think it's very important to to understand what it means and, and not just Lula being elected, but I think even more importantly that Bolsonaro was not re-elected because uh, under Bolsonaro we reached you know like we reached. Um, high, like the highest records in deforestation, in um, in greenhouse gas emissions, and also you know like the invasions in indigenous lands tripled. So he really was horrible for the environment. Um, and it's important to understand like this place that Brazil has. And one very important thing we have is the biggest part of the Amazon forest, and that matters a lot because if um, if the deforestation of the Amazon reaches 25% of the original coverage area of the Amazon, there's no hope for stopping global warming. Because at this point, which is called by scientists the point of no return, the Amazon will start to produce more greenhouse gases than it can absorb. So Lula being elected means that there is going to be a renewed effort to... Um, to you know like reduce deforestation and to keep protecting the amazon um this is very important because uh he was already president twice in the early 2000s uh, so he was president for eight years in a row and during these eight years um he managed to reduce in over 60 percent um the the deforestation levels in the amazon and then after his um his follower juma Rousseff entered also from the same party there was a still um a reduction but not as intense as under lula so the fact that he's back means that you know like environmentally speaking that he will look into the amazon issue and he is willing to tackle the criminal activities happening there but one thing that is very important is that he's willing to restart multilateralism which completely ended under bolsonaro with you know, like actions such as fighting with 
France president calling his wife ugly. So that's the level of external policies we had. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. So that that's the, the level of ridiculousness we were experiencing. So having Lula back really does bring a lot of hope back in this in this sense. Um, also, um, two very important things that he said in, in his speech during COP27 was one, uh, he mentioned the importance of tackling poverty and hunger and how they cannot be dissociated from the, the fight for, for, from the fight against global warming. And that's very important, especially for global South countries, because that's the thing, you know, like, you cannot really think about the future in one year, two years, 10 years, if you don't have anything to eat now. You know, like uh, people have priorities and even, of course, even the people who are suffering with the, the the consequences of climate change, they still have to feed themselves. And so very often they will still choose the worst scenario if it's better immediately. So this understanding that Lula brought, I think it was very important. Another thing is that he he told, you know, like the, the wealthy countries that they could expect him to be the debt collector of all these promises that are being made. Um, but of course, this is this is all very nice. This is all very good, but it's not going to be easy because the destruction that Bolsonaro caused to the country and to the country's finances was ridiculous he's leaving uh, a whole of i don't know like how many billions of reais um and so it's 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 going to be very hard because also like the the situation that the country finds itself today is not the same as 20 years ago when lula was first president so you know like uh the the criminal levels in the amazon have skyrocketed um, you know, like the 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 region. If if the Amazon region was a country, it would be the fourth in number of uh, of murders in the world. So it's it's a very yeah, like violence. While in other parts of the country, uh, intentional killings have uh, faced down. In the Amazon, they have just kept growing. So it's really not going to be easy, especially because right now, knowing that. Lula is coming. Criminal activities have skyrocketed over the past month or so because they know they're not going to be able to do the same thing once Lula um, starts in power, once he takes office. So all of this is going to be very challenging, you know, like in dealing with the situation. Not to mention, of course, that we're dealing with a geopolitical uh, context that is very different from 20 years ago. So, you know, we have the war in Ukraine, we have the China-US relations, we have, you know, like all the impact of Russia, not only in Ukraine, but also in Central Asia, uh, the relationship with Belarus and the tensions between NATO and Russia. So all of this is going to be very hard. And, and of course, it, it also means that when the diplomatic uh, context is not so easy, then diplomatic negotiations are also not um, so easy to 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 do. So this is also going to be very challenging. Well, I think a lot of people are really glad to see Lula back. I mean, I mean, especially people who care about the the Amazon and know the connection between the Amazon and and climate change and, and how important it is.
just to pivot a little bit, I mean, I, I think we, should, we probably should talk about where this was held. This was held in Egypt um, in a resort, Sharm el Sheikh, uh, uh, under the uh, control of a authoritarian government. Um, and um, as you reported in a series of videos for us, thank you so much. Um, one of the big things is that uh, they they invited a PR company for um, fossil fuel companies to manage their, you know, uh, their their high their profile uh, public profile for the conference and also um hundreds of lobbyists from fossil fuel companies uh came to the conference um to make sure that the they could influence the outcome so what was the do you, do you see any kind of like concrete like direct um impact of of all this corporate influence and and the negotiations, or or has it just been a lot of noise? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that one one very important thing is that I think the combination of where it took place, so Sharm el Sheikh, which is this resort place, it was super expensive. Uh, there was at the same time that you know, like all these fossil fuel lobbyists were invited, and there was a lot of this PR situation this unethical PR situations because it's not only that it's the same PR as big oil and coca-cola but I read a lot about how they even used fake climate activists while actual climate activists are in jail and are being tortured and all of this um I think that that all of this combined made sure that uh that the civil society was not present. Um, and I think that one thing that has always marked COPs were the side events, because it was n every year besides this year, it was not only about the negotiations taking place, but about all the other demonstrations that were happening at the same time. We had like last year, we had Greta, you know, like we had um, the the Fridays, Fridays for Future. We had a lot of demonstrations of mothers from all around the world. You know, like you always had so such a big uh, presence and a big impact from climate, from civil society and climate activists who were there exactly to um, to make pressure and to make noise and to really influence the de the decisions that were made that were being made inside the event, and that's something we didn't see this year. And so, I do believe that this this uh, absence of the civil society there uh, made a huge, huge impact. For example, in in that, in not having uh, the phasing out of fossil fuel being mentioned in the loss and damage fund, or you know, like, or even in how long it took for for the loss and damage fund to to be, uh, you know, like for for its creation to be decided. Um, also, in you know, like how vague it was. So I think, of course, all of that. When you when you have the interest of big oil and of fossil fuel lobbyists represented, but not the interest of civil society, um, then yeah, of course, of course, this has an impact. You know, um, also we have to remember that, uh, you know, people inside were being um, were being persecuted. That there were a lot of websites that were blocked. Um, you know, including like Human Rights Watch. So, you know, like people inside did not have access to human rights related content um, and to independent, uh, independent news. 
So yeah, I definitely think that this has an impact. But also like, sorry, yeah, just another thing I remember that I think is, is still important um, when when I was researching to, to produce this content uh, for Opt Out, um, I read a lot from uh, from Egyptians, from climate uh, activists from Egypt themselves, uh, who were against a boycott from uh, of the COP being there because they did think it was important to have it there in Egypt to um, draw attention to the situation that is taking place in the country, both the humanitarian situation and the climate situation. So I think that this is also important to mention that, you know, like climate Egyptian climate activists themselves still prefer that it happened there in spite of how it took place. Interesting. So interesting. Well, um, we appreciate your help with this coverage this year, um, COP27. It's been fascinating to watch and to see what came out of it. Um, we'll, of course, be tracking this, um, and uh, our independent news uh, partners will be tracking it as well. Um, uh, publications like Grist and um, currently uh, and others. And so I um, want to just wrap this up. Thank you very much. And um, we'll, uh, I guess, you know, if you want to get the latest on climate news, you should subscribe to our newsletter. And um, uh, thanks for watching. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me both in this coverage and in this chat. It was a pleasure working with you and with Opt Out. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. Published by Opt-Out News. And don't forget to sign up for Opt-Out's free newsletters and download the Opt-Out app, aggregating financially independent, trustworthy news from over 175 outlets. Read, watch, and listen to the best of independent media. No native ads, no algorithms, no profit motive. Just news, curated by journalists. Find out more at optout.news.